Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I want to back up a week and read you an email that I received from a listener last Sunday. I read it on the air once, maybe twice, but I know I read it once. And there was a lot of reaction to this email. I'll tie all this together for you in a moment. So the email was fairly brief. It came from Annette, and she wrote, Question to all those people who don't want the vaccine. If they get COVID and are really sick, what do they expect from the healthcare system? Do they want to be bumped to the front of the line, demand to be treated first? A lot of people needing health care are currently being bumped for COVID patients. Let me read it again. Question to all these people who don't want the vaccine if they get COVID and are really sick, what do they expect from the healthcare system? Do they want to be bumped to the front of the line, demand to be treated first? A lot of people needing health care are currently being bumped for COVID patients. We know this story. Because we've spoken to, among others, the president of the Canadian Medical Association about cancer and heart surgeries, other elective surgeries being set aside because of the need for hospital space for COVID patients. So I started to receive emails saying, well, what's that all about? What's it, what's it about? What was that email about? And I started to explain by way of return emails before it got to be too complex that for some period of time, there has been an accountability factor when it comes to healthcare, not only in Canada, but certainly here and other countries around the world. Many people are not aware of this. So there is an expectation that you will take care of your own health. There is an expectation that you will take care of your own health. So if, for example, you um, have a preference for a lot of alcohol and you are on the road to destroying your liver and you require a liver transplant, in the province of Ontario, for example, the Trillium Gift of Life Network as policy, and these are the, the folks who do such marvelous work by creating the possibility and the, uh, the option for, for organ transplantation, the Trillium Gift of Life Network, as policy, does not provide liver transplants for patients until they have stopped consuming alcohol for six months. Under that policy, two Ontario men died waiting for the six-month period to end. Now, that resulted in a court challenge. Meanwhile, Trillium, I'm told, is conducting a pilot project now during which assessments of candidates for liver transplantation will take place and their likelihood of a successful transplant with no return to alcohol consumption may allow for them to receive this transplantation, liver transplant, before the six-month expiry time. It's just a pilot project. But at the moment, the rule still is, if you require a liver transplant, you must not drink alcohol for six months. Now think about it. Uh, organ transplantation is, is difficult surgery. Organs do not necessarily come by very quickly. The match has to be perfect, and there's a lot involved, including commitment from the, from the patient, which takes me back to that original email, which questions people who want to be jumped and bumped to the front of the line. I hope this is all coming together for you, because I have some questions that are going to be coming your way about what personal responsibility for health is and what it isn't. And I'm not telling you that this is not about being vaccinated or not being vaccinated, all right? It's not about vaccination or deciding not to be vaccinated. 
but it is about what level of responsibility we have for our own health care. And you may say, well, Green, you're going to tell us that um, vaccination is part of that. Well, to me it is, but it doesn't necessarily have to be part of our discussion. Let me bring in my guest in, who is far more better at explaining all of this than I am, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, who's the MIDI professor of bioethics at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. His most recent book, Vaccination Ethics and Policy, um, was edited by Dr. Kaplan and uh, Jason Schwartz. And uh, Dr. Kaplan's been a guest on my program for 20-odd years. And I have to say, Dr. Kaplan, my favorite book title, you know which one it is, don't you? (laughs) I do. Smart Mice, Not So Smart People. (laughs) How are you? Very good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Yeah, a hot-button topic, for sure. Hot-button subject. So let me start with this question. Um, Just, I suppose, as as an opening gambit here. Does the COVID pandemic present particular medical ethical issues and challenges? It does. It presents many. One of the most startling is a shortage of ICU resources, a shortage in emergency rooms. We've got situations in Canada. We had them uh, in the U.S. in New York, where I am a year ago. can see them, obviously, in India. But uh, many, many other countries are facing a crunch. And traditionally, we take all comers into the ER. We take all comers in medicine uh, and get them stabilized. So to find out that you might have an overwhelmed emergency room outside of, say, a natural disaster, that's novel. Another unique issue is we have ways to prevent uh, problems from uh, one of the big demands on ERs and ICUs, COVID. Vaccination would help. Distancing, masking, isolation, taking responsibility to not infect yourself and others. But a lot of people won't do it. A lot of people are shying away from that. And I'd say a third sort of unique ethics challenge that comes screaming out of uh, COVID is when is it important to take care of your own health, but what do you owe to your neighbor? Remember, there are a lot of people with transplants, cancer, immune diseases, newborn babies. They can't vaccinate. They won't build a response to that. So even when there is enough vaccine, If the rest of us don't do it, they're at risk. So are you going to do what you should to help your neighbor? Right. There's one other uh, aspect to all of this that has stayed with me since I first heard that it was becoming necessary, and that is there are doctors who are in the ICUs and in the ERs who have to make a decision because uh, based on the supplies they have available, oxygen and and other life-saving medical supplies, they have to make decisions about literally about who gets the the uh, the life-saving um, medical assistance and who doesn't. Right. And so let me tell you what happened here, just to give us all a template for thinking about this. Back maybe uh, last March of uh, a year ago, we had a crunch that was terrible in uh, the New York area. And hospitals began to talk about what to do. And we had many people trying to get in to emergency rooms. Some were COVID patients. Some might have been in car accidents or had other uh, terrible things happen to them. And the question was, do we triage them at the ER because the ERs were getting overwhelmed? And we decided not to do that, but instead to try and admit as many people as possible to ICU care who needed it, 
and then see who responded well to ICU care after trying it for a few days and see who did not, and then maybe remove those people to palliative care. How's that for a miserable decision? So we had situations where we thought, well, let's give everybody a go and stretch as far as we can. But in order to generate more resources, we're not going to try and, if you will, predict at the front end who's going to do well. We're going to see who does well after a period of time and then make the horrific decision to give up on some people. Dr. Kaplan, patients have how much personal responsibility for their health and how common is it internationally for the carrying out of life-saving surgical procedures like organ transplantation to depend on successfully abstaining from alcohol or perhaps tobacco for a given period? Not very common, Roy, and let me split the question this way. One issue is what should doctors, nurses, what should their stance be toward patients? And I'm going to call it broadly patients who sin. They don't do the right thing. They don't take care of themselves and so on. And then what should the policy be of the government or the authorities in terms of paying for things or controlling access to resources, which is an issue for you and me and the callers to decide. Historically, doctors and nurses have said, we don't care how you got sick. We don't care if you're a good guy or a bad guy. We don't care if you're a criminal or a victim. We're going to take care of you. Now, there may be a little bit of A in front of B if the policeman and the burglar show up at the same time with injuries. The cop might go first, but the burglar gets taken care of. And the general ethic is medicine doesn't really pay attention, if you will, to personal behavior because they don't know enough. You show up at the ER and, you know, we don't know whether you're a good or a bad person taking care of yourself or not. You can make some guesses. But historically, it's been an ethic to just treat those in need. Governments, like in areas like transplant, tend to set rules a little differently. And they may say, unless you do A or B, you're not going to get care. Um, So partly, I'm going to answer this by saying you don't want doctors to do it because I think it's better that they just treat whoever comes in front of them. I don't like what the British surgeon said. But if the National Health Service, through a political decision, said no, no smokers, nobody gets uh, that care as a class, well, maybe I wouldn't agree, but at least that's the appropriate place to do it. So having said that, let me quickly add one other thing. If I go through the hospital at NYU tomorrow morning, here's what I'm going to see. Suicide attempts, HIV, trauma from driving too fast, people with drinking issues, smoking issues, obesity issues, skiing injuries, I saw that, mishandling of a gun in the home. In other words, if you want to save money on healthcare, if you really go after everybody who misbehaved or didn't act properly, you'll be okay because you'll clean the whole place out. (laughs) There is a lot of bad behavior filling up our hospital beds. Okay, I understand that, and I thank you for that. But it's not unusual, is it, to have the kind of um, expectation and uh, expressed expectation that if you wish to have the organ transplant, you will not drink alcohol for six months, and you will demonstrably prove to us that you are not drinking alcohol for six months because there's another person who doesn't drink alcohol who requires a liver as well. So if we have to make a choice, we'll choose you as long as you can prove to us that you're not drinking for six months. And we're going to test you. And part of the argument for that is the data shows that people who keep drinking 
don't do as well as people who stop. So right. it isn't just punishment. It's partly, this isn't going to work as well on you if you, stay, if you keep drinking as it would if you stopped. By the way, listeners, here's something to ponder. If you were at a frat party at a college and you drank to the point where you shut down your liver and were dying, you go to the head of the list. In other words, misuse of alcohol acutely all at once. And you can ask Trillium about this too. That would be an emergency. They would try to get you a transplant young person who drank, you know, nine bottles of liquor at a hazing or something or voluntarily. Well, uh, even as part of a suicide, we don't punish that. We actually just treat it. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.